majority of graduate students here at Western University. Tonight, I'm your host, Monica Molinero. And I'm your co-host, Sarah Klapman. And we are joined by our guest, Yuvana Shibalia. To start, did you want to tell us about yourself? Um, sure. So I am a PhD student in the Health and Rehabilitation Sciences program here at Western, which is part of the Faculty of Health Sciences. I did my master's degree in the same program, and then I also got my Bachelor of Health Sciences here at Western. So I've been here a long time. I think in September I'm going into my 10th year. Um, and then my PhD research, I'm interested in family caregivers. So those are people who are taking care um, they're providing unpaid care or assistance to a friend or a family member because of a health or a physical limitation. And I'm specifically interested in looking at their social networks. So looking at the people that they're connected to and understanding um, the types of support that they get from those people, how caregiving impacts their social relationships. And then also lately just thinking a lot more about how do people who are caregivers go about seeking support from people in their network. Okay. so. How did you even start in the realm of caregiving and caregivers? So actually, it all started in undergrad. Uh, I took a course that was called Population Health and Aging, and it was all about understanding how Canada's aging population is going to impact our healthcare system in various ways. And we actually had a lecture on caregiving, and that was the first time I'd really heard about caregivers. I hadn't really thought about the fact that if a person is diagnosed with a disease or they have a disability that their family member is even someone who's part of the circle of care. Um, and during that lecture, our professor was talking a lot about this idea of caregiver burden and how stressed out caregivers are. And she specifically talked about this one study that was done in the 90s that found that caregivers were actually at an increased risk of death than people who weren't caregivers just because of the stress that they were under. And I remember after that lecture, it was just something that I couldn't stop thinking about, and I just started learning more about it on my own. And then when I did my master's degree at Western, I was able to learn more about caregiving. And I just think it's just a really important topic because caregivers do so much for their loved ones and for their healthcare system. I mean, they're doing a lot of work for free, which at a systems level is really good because they're saving us a lot of money. But because they're doing so much to support the people that they care for, we have to make sure that we're also supporting them as well and making sure that the caregiver is cared for. So that's how I got into it. You mentioned uh, talking about supporting the caregivers and I think that's terrific because uh, it seems like a really clear way that your research is applied in, in a socially beneficial way. Um, I wonder, when you talk about supporting caregivers, do you spend a lot of time meeting caregivers? And if so, does that sort of inform your research? So I haven't actually started my own research yet. I'm still in the process of kind of planning the proposal. But in the first year of my PhD, I did have the opportunity um, to speak to some caregivers. Um, it was part of a project that was evaluating a community stroke rehab program in London. And they wanted to get an understanding of um, the stroke survivor and their family members perspective. So that was the first time I got to talk to caregivers um, because for my master's study, I didn't actually collect my own data. What I did was I analyzed data from the Canadian Longitudinal Study on Aging, which is a big national um, aging study we have going on in Canada right now. So that was really cool because I got to look at things from a population perspective and look at kind of the population impact of things. But I didn't really get a chance to talk to caregivers one-on-one -on -one until I started my PhD. 
So then the work that you did in your master's at the population level, are you using anything that you found from that and applying it to what you're hoping to do with your PhD right now? Um, yeah, I would say indirectly because with my master's project, what I did was I looked at how caregivers' um, levels of social support and as well as how often they were participating in activities with others in the community influenced the amount of depressive symptoms that they were reporting. And what we found with that study was that actually caregivers were reporting lower amounts of depression than non-caregivers because they were able to participate with other people more often than non-caregivers in the study. And it kind of got me thinking about this idea of the importance of understanding who we're connected to and the types of support that those people are giving us. So um, I guess in a way it was like an inspiration for wanting to dive deeper into social networks because to me, I very much see social support as a function of what our social relationships do for us. And to really understand how it works and how it affects us, I think you do have to take a step back and kind of understand who are the people in a person's network and how are they connected to each other and how does that influence the way that people go experience stress in different life experiences. Definitely. Yeah. Do you find that there's um, an ideal sort of social network, people who perform specific functions and that really provides like some sort of buffer for these caregivers? Um, well, what we found more in general in the aging literature is that people who have something called a diverse network type, so that's when you have a social network that's filled with, you know, family members, friends, co-workers, neighbors, people from all different areas of your life. They tend to have better mental health outcomes, specifically depression and anxiety is what they've looked at, than people who have a restricted network. So that's either like a very small network or one where they're not seeing people as often. So the people in your network definitely do matter and it shows kind of the more people you know and the more diversity that you have, it does seem to have a bit of a more beneficial effect than if you do have more of an isolated network. Yeah. And when you talk about social support, what exactly does that mean? Like what is involved in being a social support for someone? So on the way that I look at it, social support is just any type of help that you may give someone. So that can be something like, um, lending someone money, uh, that's like an example of financial support, giving your friend a ride to the airport, that's a sign of A, a good friend, and you know that's how you know who cares for you. Um, emotional support, being able to confide in people and talk about your problems, having someone you can go to in a crisis. So it's really any type of help that you get from other people is how I see it. Okay, how does that differ from a friend? Does it differ from a friend? Uh, no, because I like, Friends are sources of social support, just like your family is a source of social support. It's more of kind of like the things that are involved in the act of helping someone and different relationships in your life may provide you with different kinds of support. So when you talk about social support networks for caregivers, can you give us an example? Because you mentioned this like high mortality rate for, for caregivers. What is it about caregiving that's so stressful and how can that be mitigated with these social supports? So caregiving is, can be stressful in a lot of different ways. Um, one of the ways that it can be stressful is just dealing with the diagnosis of a family member, say having a stroke or getting dementia. It's navigating the whole process of that that's stressful, figuring out, okay, now what can I do for this person? What type of healthcare services do we need? Are there things that I need to do in my home to make things easier for them? And then what a lot of research has shown is that 
something that can be really stressful about caregiving is just the change in the relationship that a person experiences with the person that you're caring for. So a really good example of this is um, spouses. So if a wife, for example, is caring for her husband who has dementia and he starts forgetting who she is, their family, it's, it's a different relationship now because she might not be able to just talk to her, talk to him about his day or see how things are going. She's not able to get that support from that person. So it's also navigating that change in relationship. And then caregiving can also just take up a lot of time. Um, you might have to take time off work to take your loved one to a medical appointment. You might have to not see your friends because you can't, you don't want to leave the person that you're caring for alone or you can't get care in the home. So there's a lot of different factors that can lead to caregiver stress. So in regard to your dissertation research, then can you tell us a little bit more about that and what you're hoping to study with it? So what I'm hoping, uh, it's funny because I just had an email thread with my supervisors about this. So it's a really timely question. What I'm really interested in is looking at the structure of caregivers network so who they're connected to and then also the composition which is the people in their network and kind of examining the processes of what's known in the literature as social support mobilization so it's really understanding the ways in which people go about seeking help so from deciding who am i going to go to and why and then what that support does for him does for them um, that's what i'm really interested in looking at and understanding because there has been a lot of research done on social support, but most of it has looked at how much support do you have and is that related to a certain health outcome. But what I think is more important is diving deeper and understanding if you're a caregiver and you're experiencing stress or just need support from other people, how do you then go about seeking that support based on what your network is like and who's in it? And then how does that support impact your experience of caregiving? So kind of understanding the decision-making behind seeking social support and how people go about getting it. From this, do you think that, like, as you're talking about this, what I'm thinking about, do you think that there's potential for caregivers who just don't seek support or feel as though that they can take on whatever caregiving tasks or needs by themselves? Um, it's likely that there are people like that. Um, I think a lot of it depends on people's situations and what they're comfortable doing with certain conditions like dementia and even stroke. A lot of people might not feel comfortable seeking support because sometimes with those conditions, there is a lot of stigma surrounding kind of what the person who has the condition is capable of doing. Sometimes it's just feeling like no one really, you might not have other caregivers in your network, so no one really understands what you're going through. Sometimes there can be family conflict over how care is being provided and what is the best for the person in that situation. So there are definitely instances where it can be difficult, but I think that's also an important thing to learn more about is if people feel like they aren't supported, why and what are ways that we can help them to get the support that they need. Yeah, I was just going to ask whether there was sort of an end goal to the research because understanding it is so important and then being able to implement it. So is in a blue sky environment, is there a way that you think you could implement your research to really help caregivers access the sort of help that they need? Yeah, I think in my ideal world, we also, along with assessing the patient, I think we also just need to be doing assessments of the caregivers themselves and just doing a better job of checking in with them and asking them how they're doing, how they're coping, how their health is. Because if the caregiver is struggling and they aren't able to provide the care that they need for their family member, then 
that also affects how well the person who needs care does and then they might have to be hospitalized or relocated to a long-term care home. So I think, yeah, we need to be paying more attention to the caregiver and just assessing things like, do you feel you have supports or people that you can talk to? And then if they don't, finding ways to connect them to community services or other resources out there that, that, that can help. Something you said before that was really interesting that I kind of want to go back to is that some caregivers are stressed about potential stigmas or perceptions of certain conditions. Can you tell us more about that? Um, yeah, I can uh, do my best because I'm not an expert in a lot of the diseases, but I know for things like uh, a condition like dementia, sometimes what can happen is the person with dementia can exhibit something called responsive behaviors. So they might get aggressive or they might resist care or sometimes there's a lot of personality changes that are associated with dementia. So they might start swearing in public or making inappropriate comments to people. Um, so that's some of the ways that stigma can occur in caregiving is just kind of feeling ashamed or not wanting to put other people in uncomfortable situations um, with what's going on. Because I think with especially a disease like dementia, there's still a lot of things that we don't talk about publicly in terms of what goes on. So I think there still is a lot of stigma when someone has a diagnosis. Other people might not know how to react either. So it can just make it a bit more complicated for everyone involved. And I'm assuming from there too, that would also have, you know, as a next step, have an effect on potential social networks. If this individual, if the caregiver feels as though this person might exhibit some behaviors that are deemed inappropriate, they don't necessarily want to reach out to other people's for help, knowing that who they're caring for might exhibit a behavior that they don't want other people to see or know about. Yeah, they might just not even want to do things with their friends anymore or go out and socialize. Also with a, a condition like dementia, sometimes it can be hard having people in the home because the person with dementia might not recognize them anymore. So they might react and it can cause a lot of stress. So I think it, it can also just contribute to this idea of just wanting to kind of withdraw a little bit. And also, especially when it's a spouse caring for their partner, a lot of the times the activities that they did with their spouse, like going out for dinner with friends or going to the theater, that's things that they can no longer do together. Um, so that also may not want make, make them want to go out and socialize too. So there's a lot of social consequences that I think pe a lot of people aren't aware about about caregiving. Yeah, you mentioned that uh, there are differences in the way that people sort of access or react to social support based on the, their relationship to the person to whom they're providing care. So, a, you know, a husband and wife, for instance, do you find that there are specific sort of profiles for if it's, you know, a parent and child or a friend or a neighbor or a, a romantic partner? Um, yeah, so a lot of the research is focused on spouses and adult children just because they make up the majority of caregivers in a lot of cases. And what we found is that Spouses, they tend to help a lot more with things like personal care. So feeding, bathing, toileting, really intense kind of heavy duty tasks. And they tend to be caregivers for a longer period of time. Uh, now that's not to say that children just give up and quit. It's just a lot of times when someone is an adult child, they may have their own family that they have to care for as well. So there's balancing those needs as well. They might not have the resources, the time or the kind of capacity to continue providing intensive care that a parent may need. So they might relocate someone to long-term care earlier or get more support services in. 
So in terms of what spouses and children do, it's different. Children tend to help more with things like groceries and transportation and meal prep. And then um, with children specifically, they're able to confide into their spouse if they're married about what's going on. Um, so there, I think there are differences in that. Maybe spouses, because their spouse is no longer the same person to them or that relationship has changed, they may have lost a bit of support in that sense, whereas children may have their own partner to talk to and reach out to or um, other friends who are going through similar situations. So it really depends. It's very situation and context specific, but we do see some patterns emerge between spouses and children. Okay. So in regard to your research then, in thinking about how you actually want to move forward with it, what are you hoping to do? Is it going to be a qualitative study, a quantitative study? Where do you think you're going to go? Um, so I'm actually really interested in mixed methods. Um, so using both quantitative and qualitative methods in a study, because I think specifically social networks are really nice, lend themselves really nicely to the use of mixed methods because you're looking at structure. So how people are connected to each other, but then you also want to be able to examine the relationships that people have with each other. So I think qualitative methods lend themselves really nicely to that, being able to talk to people and kind of understand what certain relationships mean to them. You know, why are you going to this person over other people in your network? You can get a lot more in-depth data that way than you can with quantitative methods. But the nice thing with a lot of quantitative methods when it comes to social networks is the ability to actually visualize the network. So there's a lot of um, cool software out there that can kind of map out how people are connected to one another. And then you can look at different properties of the network, like do a lot of people in this network know each other? Is it really densely connected? Um, are there people who are kind of on the outskirts of the network where then they, connect you, they can connect you to their social network? Um, so they can serve as a bridge of some sort. So I think being able to use kind of the visualization um, would be really neat in my research. And then you can then take that visualization and then use it in an interview and get them and use it kind of as a prompt to get people to tell you more things about their network. But I think um, you also kind of have to get a deeper understanding of the relationships that are um, happening between people too. And I think the best way to do that is through qualitative methods because you have more of that time to go in depth with someone. That's really interesting, the, the combination of qualitative and quantitative. I think, yeah, there, there are real possibilities there for sort of creative uh, data representation. So kudos to you for that, that's great. Um, do you find when you do these sorts of interviews that people respond well to having uh, their their kind of life's information, their social networks put in front of them? Does it does it seem to make them feel like you're really invested in them as a person? Because as somebody who does research that is primarily quantitative, we don't have a lot of time for the person, you know? Um, so I actually haven't started my own uh, research yet. I'm still working on writing my proposal, but Sorry. it's... Uh, something that I do think about a lot, though, because I do think, especially when you are going into like, well, I don't know if you can go into someone's home now, but when you are doing in-person interviews, you are getting people to tell you very personal things about their life. And sometimes a question that seems really straightforward to you might actually trigger them and they end up telling you something really personal. So I think you do get more of a chance to connect with who your, um, who your participant is and understanding who they are more. But then I also think you have to really respect that and kind of acknowledge that, you know, they're doing you a really big favor by being so vulnerable and open 
and you want to make sure that you're, you're then taking the time to make sure that they feel heard and that you're representing them in the way that they want to be represented. So I do think it's a, a definitely a balance in terms of kind of making sure that you as the researcher are getting the information that you need, but then also respecting the fact that this is a person that's in front of you and making sure that they're comfortable and heard and that, uh, you know, you do what you can to make it the best experience for them. Do you think that with your research, do you only want to interview caregivers or are you considering interviewing people that they consider to be in their social network or even the individuals that they're caring for? Or is this solely just the caregivers? Um, it's definitely something that I've thought about. Um, I do think it would be really interesting if I could talk to maybe one or two people in their network to kind of understand then, well, what is it like to support a caregiver, um, like how has it affected their friendship or relationship with them? Because there might just be things that we might be missing from the other end because we don't know how caregiving is perceived by the people in a person's uh, network. So it's definitely something I think would be really neat to do. It's just a matter of how feasible it would be and who would be willing to participate. But I think getting the perspective of the other people is Will be would add a lot to kind of what we know and can maybe can help us understand if like there's any miscommunication going on is it just a misunderstanding of the situation or could it just be that people feel like they don't know what to do and how can you support them so i think multiple perspectives are really important do you think that uh, as you go in as you design this proposal and you're thinking about this project are you are there things you're expecting to find at the end you know predictions that you have about what will come out of this data um i don't know i'm like trying not to have any predictions because i just want especially for the qualitative research side of things i don't want to have any assumptions going into it and just assume that i kind of know what they're going to say because it could be very different and I don't want to in my head kind of lead them into a direction that I just think is interesting. I think with those interviews, you kind of have to let them progress naturally. Um, I think it will be interesting in terms of network structure, kind of looking at, because um, there's this misconception that, you know, older adults are lonely and they don't have that many people in their lives, but having a smaller network isn't necessarily a bad thing. It could just mean that you're prioritizing certain relationships over others in your life. So it'd be interesting to see kind of how structural properties like the size of a network, how you know connected people are, how that influences what's going on in the network. Um, based on what I've read, it, I don't know, it might be like there are some properties that are really important. Like if you have a really connected network, it's really easy for information to spread and that type of thing. So it'll be interesting to see if that affects like how support spreads through a network. But I'm just trying to kind of keep an open mind and just see where things go. It's kind of what I've learned with the PhD is you just kind of have to go with the flow sometimes and you never know what's going to come your way. <laughs> um, okay, so thinking about the questions that you want to ask and thinking about these support networks and social networks, can you see some of this work potentially applying to other pools or kinds of caregivers, like caregivers of individuals with cancer? as an example? Yeah, definitely. Because I think while each, while caregiving for a certain condition is, comes with its own unique set of challenges and circumstances, I do think that there are things that are 
universal and that, you know, as humans, we all want to be supportive and we all want to be able to have people to talk to about things and people who understand what we're going through. So I think for me, I've chosen to focus on a specific population just because for the, it's really important in caregiving to just understand that context of who the caregiver is, who the person that they're caring for is, what's the condition, because that can influence um, a lot of the ways that stress manifests. But I think in terms of support, there's hundreds and hundreds of articles across all areas of health that talk about that, you know, social support is a buffer of stress. It's really beneficial for our well-being. Loneliness kills. So I think those are things that do translate. It just might be a bit different depending on people's own circumstances. But I think the need to connect with others is just a basic need and right for all of us. So yeah, I, I see it translating um, in a lot of different ways. That's really neat. And I think very important um, being able to sort of apply the things that you find to a variety of contexts. If you could sort of create one outcome of this that you think would be the most useful or the useful is a hard word, but that you would really like to be able to take from this and to sort of provide to the wider world, what would it be? I think for me, it's just really making sure that people understand just how important our social relationships are. I think, I mean, the time that we're living in now has kind of highlighted that, the importance of social connection and just how much of a difference it can make. And I think, especially for healthcare providers, it might not be something that they're thinking about because a lot of the times it's very much dealing with the diagnosis and the condition, which is very important. And we want people to get the medicine and the care that they need. But it's also thinking about how can they, how are they supported in other in other areas of their life, um, in order to make sure that, that they're able to stay healthy. I think we talk a lot about the importance of social support, but I think, especially kind of during now now during this COVID time, people are realizing we really do need to make sure that people are connected to others, they're interacting, and you know seeing other people whether in person or virtually. So. I'm just hoping that people understand the importance of checking in on others and making sure that people know that it's okay to ask for support and that, you know, social relationships are an important determinant of our health as well. And I think that's something we need to start thinking more seriously and more deeply about than we already do. Definitely. And since caregiving is such a universal topic and so many people are going to have an interest in this, is there any way that people can get in contact with you if they wanted to talk to you a little bit about a bit more about your research? Um, yeah, I am on Twitter. My handle is at Joe Shibalia. That's spelt J-O-S-I-B-A-L-I-J-A. And then you can also find me on LinkedIn and then um, my UWO email. People can always reach me uh, through there as well. Okay. And what's your UWO email? It's J-S-I-B-A-L-I-J at UWO.ca. Perfect. Okay. Thanks so much, Giovanna. Thank you. Um, so with that, everyone, this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I've been your host, Monica Molinero, and today I was joined by my co-host, Sarah Clapman. We've been speaking with Yuvana Shibulia tonight, and our episode was produced by Ariel Frame. If you'd like to get involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at GradCastRadio. 
To listen to us, we are on the radio at CHRW 94.9 FM. And you can also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Also, some of our podcasts have been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thanks so much for listening.